Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATOS, your time-traveling speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we're doing something new, something that I'm really excited about, covering our first Star Trek novel. Clay Temple Media's move into podcasting is something we did years ago now. Uh, this move came about because of three things, and one of them was that Valerie Hoagland asked me to do a Star Trek Discovery podcast with her. That show is called Lower Decks. It's still going, though it's not exclusively a Discovery show anymore. We review episodes from the entire Trek catalog now. But we've never done a Star Trek novel, so I'm really excited about this episode. All right, but which one are we talking about? I mean, there's hundreds of Star Trek novels. So the one that you, our Patreon supporters, have picked out was the original series novel, The Entropy Effect, which was written by Vonda McIntyre, and this was published back in 1981. Now, I say it's a TOS, a original series novel, but of course, in 1981, it was just a Star Trek novel because there was only just one incarnation of Trek. There was no next generation, no enterprise, no discovery. And that's something that we'll talk about when we get to the, the themes and motifs segment. And that's actually part of what has me excited about this book, looking at the, the Trek expanded universe as it was conceived of before the next generation existed. In, in fact, before most of the original series movies, even. I mean, this is before the Wrath of Khan. And as I said, this book was selected by our Patreon supporters from a list of Star Trek novels. And I put this one on the list because Vonda McIntyre, who was a huge force in science fiction in the 1970s, passed away in 2019. And we're going to end up covering at least one of her short stories on Patreon at some point, too. She was just too important to, to not look at in more detail. Okay, well, I'm quite excited to be talking about talking about this novel, but I think that's enough preamble. Let's actually get into the talking about the novel part. Let's get into the entropy effect. So this is going to be an interesting episode, I think. It will almost certainly be shorter than usual. And in part, that's because it's a short book. It's, it's just barely over 200 pages in a, in a tiny mass market. So if it were in a, in a trade paperback, it'd be uh, about 150 pages, I think. But really, it's mostly because we don't need to spend any time talking about the setting or about the characters because you already know all of that. If you're listening to a speculative fiction podcast, then you've seen some Star Trek, even if you aren't actually a hardcore Trekker, even if you don't like Star Trek, you still know about Kirk and Spock and the Enterprise. You know we're in the 23rd century and that there's warp speed and Klingons and the Federation, and you know that people wear velour sweaters in space for some reason. And I don't mean to sound pedantic or facetious here. I bring this up because it's an important element of this book. Vonda McIntyre doesn't have to build this world or, or build these characters for us because she's able to work, and in fact, I think she's probably required to work, on the assumption that this book is not going to be your first exposure to Star Trek. Now, of course, there is some world building in this book. We might really maybe call it world expanding, and that is going to be one of the things I'll talk about in the next segment. But for the most part, McIntyre just doesn't have to do this. And so we can jump straight into the plot, which we don't normally get to do. So, it is 2270. The Enterprise is still on its five-year mission, and the events of Star Trek The Motion Picture have not yet taken place. The Enterprise is investigating a negative singularity on the edge of Federation space. And Spock's been at it for weeks already, and his data is perplexing. It's unlike any other singularity that's ever been investigated, 
And what's most fascinating is that it is inexplicably increasing in entropy at an alarming rate. So this seems like an interesting premise for a pretty good Star Trek story. But it turns out to, to just be a cold open because the Enterprise receives an ultimate override order that forces our heroes to leave this interesting singularity behind and instead to head to Aleph Prime. Now, this type of order is serious business. It's reserved for things like an invasion or a star suddenly going supernova. And one of the protocols is that the ship receiving this order will enter radio silence. And so when the Enterprise gets to Aleph Prime, Kirk and company are expecting a fight or like an emergency evacuation effort. But there's nothing of the sort. Everything seems fine. And so here there's a, a real mystery. What's going on? What's happening? Why did we get the ultimate override order? Well, there is a space station here. It's on an asteroid. And there's a, a prisoner who needs to be transferred to a rehab facility not very far away. It's in the same system. The, the head of law enforcement on the station, a man named Braithwaite, he did put in a request for a transport vessel. But he certainly didn't issue an ultimate override for this. Uh, e even if the prisoner were, say, Khan, you still wouldn't use the ultimate override for a prisoner transfer. So... Something is afoot here, but there's not really much effort to figure out what happened. Instead, the Enterprise is just going to go ahead and do this, just going to go ahead and transport this prisoner, even though that's kind of a, a waste of a starship of the Enterprise's caliber. And there are two reasons that Kirk makes this decision. For one, Kirk thinks that the crew could use some R&R. &R. And two, Aleph Prime is on the edge of Federation space, and so it's protected by a fleet of attack vessels. Uh, these are warships in ways that the Enterprise simply is not. And one of these attack vessels is at Aleph Prime for some repairs. And of course, the captain of this ship is an old friend of Kirk's. But Kirk is not the only one with an old friend here. The real kicker is that the prisoner is one of Spock's former physics professors, a, a man named Dr. Mordreau, which is an awesome name, almost as on the nose as Voldemort. It's meant to evoke death, right? That's the Mord part. And also Dr. Moreau, the, the famous H.G. Wells mad scientist. And mad scientists is precisely what we're dealing with here. Mordreau was run out of academia a number of years ago because of his crazy interest in time travel. And in particular, he's, he's moved out of theoretical physics and into doing actual experiments with time travel. And what's landed him in trouble is that he's been doing time travel experiments with people. And of course, they've all disappeared. The people have all vanished. And now he claims that they were all volunteers who wanted to travel back in time and not come back. And that's all he's done is fulfill their wishes. But, well, uh, he's been convicted of a number of crimes. I mean, you know, this is tough when your witnesses all live in a different time than you do. Uh, naturally, though, Spock is emotionally invested in this, or curious, as he would say, because, you know, Vulcans don't have emotions, even though they super do. Okay, so that's Mordreau. Now let's talk about Captain Hunter, who is Kirk's old friend from the Academy. Captain Hunter is something of a legend because she never loses any of her frequent battles with Klingons, and she's protected many of the, the border planets against Klingon fleets and, and against fleets that were much larger than her own. And this actually includes Sulu's own homeworld, Ganjitsu. But even though she's super awesome now, Hunter had a rough time of it back in the Academy because of her religious practices. Although Starfleet accommodates all religious clothing and all religious material accoutrements, Hunter's expression of her small and not very popular religion, uh, we don't actually get that much about it either, uh, 
her expression of her religion got her into trouble with the student in charge of her training squad. When she refused to stop wearing a bird feather that is part of her religion, she was charged with insubordination. And here, this is where Kirk comes into the story, because he had to defend her against these charges. And at first, Kirk himself was skeptical of her claim, but Hunter showed him that he was simply ill-informed about her religion. And then, when Kirk was able to incorporate this new information, he defended her with real zeal, and they won their case. Now, this is James T. Kirk we're talking about here, so naturally, following this, they had a romance that didn't last— And this is something that I'll talk about more in the next segment as well. So here I'll just say that Kirk is interested in getting a day off to spend with Hunter. And Kirk is not the only member of the crew with romance on his mind. Uh, We've already seen how Sulu is connected to Hunter. More on that in a moment. But Sulu is also going to be one of our point of view characters in the novel because he and the new security chief have a budding romance of their own going on. And this new security chief is a woman named Mandala Flynn, who has just transferred to the Enterprise. And she and Sulu have been dancing around a romance ever since she got here. Uh, And I'll have more to say about this relationship in the next segment as well. So here, let me just say that they do actually begin a relationship. But as soon as they do, Sulu transfers off the Enterprise and onto Hunter's ship. And here, Sulu is thinking about his career, right? If he wants to get promoted, and especially if he wants his own command someday, then he needs to get some different experiences. And combat experience, which he will get in the Border Patrol, is going to suit his resume just fine. Also, he totally hero-worships Captain Hunter because she saved his homeworld, so there's that too. Okay, so that's all the setup. Once Sulu transfers and he and Hunter have to head back to the Border Patrol... The Enterprise takes custody of Dr. Mordreau and begins to transport him to this nearby rehab facility. And, of course, as soon as they get going, it all goes wrong. Dr. Mordreau bursts onto the bridge and kills Captain Kirk and Mandela Flynn. And this is really just a few hours after they've said goodbye to people they are, or have been at least, romantically involved with. So it's heartbreaking. But of course, right, we know Kirk is not actually going to be dead at the end of the book. And so our interest really is in how this is going to get undone. And it turns out that there are some odd things happening on the Enterprise. For one, Dr. Mordreau is still in his locked and guarded quarters, and he never left. So if that's true, how was he on the bridge killing people? On top of that, Scotty saw Spock in the transporter room when he was going up to the bridge. And then when he got to the bridge, Spock was there too. So how is that possible? Well, you've guessed it already, right? It's time travel. Now, Bones got real drunk when Kirk died, and I would too. And he tried to talk Spock into doing some time travel to fix this. Uh, You know, they've done it before, of course, but Spock wouldn't go for it. But still, after the murder, Spock has been interviewing Mordreau and has realized that the bizarre singularity he'd been investigating was actually caused by Mordreau's time travel experiments. And specifically, it's developed because people have gone to live back in time. What's worse, though, what really matters is that now that the two scientists are comparing notes, they have figured out that this singularity is going to destroy the entire universe in less than a century, unless they can go back in time and prevent Mordreau from sending people back in time and creating the singularity to begin with. Naturally, Spock is the one who's going to have to do this. So they use the transporter to build a time machine. And Spock tries several times to correct the timeline, but each time he fails. And this, of course, is how Scotty saw Spock in the transporter room and the bridge at the same time. 
And of course, it turns out that there are two Dr. Mordros from the future who are messing with the timeline as well. There's the one who kills Kirk and is a madman because of his rehab, and another who is trying to clean up the entire mess, just like Spock is. So that's one obstacle. The other obstacle is that while Spock is trying to save the universe, Braithwaite is carrying out his own investigation into the murder of Kirk, and he's decided that Spock, Mordreau, Bones, and also Mandela Flynn had conspired to murder Kirk so that they could steal the Enterprise and then sell it to the Romulans or the Klingons for profit. And he convinces Scotty that this might be true, and he gets Scotty's help. And then Hunter and Sulu show up because they've heard about the murders. And they also maybe a little bit believe Braithwaite because Bones won't tell them why they can't see Spock. And he won't tell them what's really going on here. But in the end, of course, it all gets cleaned up just fine. Spock and the the good guy, future Dr. Mardreau, get an audience with the Dr. Mardreau of the past. And they convince him to stop experimenting with time travel. And because of this, the story that we've read never actually happened even though Spock remembers it for reasons that befuddle him, that, that defy the laws of physics. But that's not the absolute end of the story. We do get a coda here from Kirk's point of view. Even though he hasn't actually reconnected with Captain Hunter, and even though Sulu has not requested a transfer, nonetheless, this Kirk has been thinking about Sulu's career, and he wants to keep Sulu on the Enterprise because Sulu is awesome, but he also wants to make sure that Sulu can have a great career in Starfleet, And so he gives him a field promotion with some new responsibilities. And so in the end, Sulu gets his career in order. He also gets to start a romance with Mandela Flynn. And the book ends with the knowledge that everything is going to be awesome. And on the topic of awesome, I think let's just zip straight into our themes and motifs segment here. The most important theme in the Entropy Effect is regret. It's all about people wishing they'd done something they didn't. For Kirk, this is all about his relationship with Hunter. They had a romance, and they were very much in love. But Hunter is a member of a a partnership family composed of nine people, and she invited Kirk to join them, which is really to say that she asked Kirk to marry into this group and to be a co-parent with them. But Kirk was afraid of commitment, and so he turned her down. And then it happened again, and then a third time. There's three times she's proposed to him. And now that he's had a day with Hunter again, he realizes that he really does want to be a part of this family. But he thinks it's too late. He thinks that he missed his chance. And of course, naturally, right, he goes and talks to Bones, who tells him that it's never too late, that he should tell Hunter how he feels. He may not get what he wants, but at least he will have taken action. Now, of course, right, in terms of the plot, this is all a setup for us to feel really heartbroken when Kirk dies just before he gets this chance. But it works for me nonetheless, and I find it really fascinating. And and also, I should say that this partnership family reminded me a lot of Phlox's situation on Enterprise, and I was really delighted to see that parallel. Well, this is not the only place where Kirk feels regret. Kirk also has regret regarding his friendship with Bones. Because Kirk has no family, in part because of the, the choices he's made about Hunter, Because Kirk has no family, Bones then is the legal executor of his will. And so when Kirk dies, he ends up watching the video recording of that will, you know, because it's the future and they don't use paperwork or legal forms, I guess. Kirk has charmingly addressed this video directly to Bones. And one of the first things he says is that Bones is his best friend and he regrets that he's never openly said so. And he then goes on to say that he hopes he'll make a point of it as soon as he's done recording this. But we know, and Bones knows, of course, that he hasn't. 
And there's some of this with Sulu and Mandala, too, some of this regret. Sulu knows that he wants to transfer off the Enterprise, and, and even if Hunter won't accept him onto her crew, he still wants to go somewhere else. And so because of that, he doesn't want to get romantically involved with Mandala if he's just going to leave in a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. And he tells Mandala this, which is a move that I love, but she tells him that he doesn't need to feel that way on her behalf, that she's perfectly fine with a brief romance, with a clear expiration date. But Sulu still isn't, and he spends a lot of time in his quarters wondering which he will regret more, not having a romantic relationship with Mandala Flynn when he had the chance, or having to leave a lover in pursuit of his career. Another way to put this, another way we might think about this is, when I'm looking back on my life, would I rather regret the things I did or the things I didn't do? And this is a question we all have to ask ourselves as we go through our lives. And it's tough to know the right answer. Of course, we don't actually have to pick one extreme and treat it as if it's a religious commandment. In fact, that's probably a pretty bad idea. But it is important to have a sense of yourself and and, and a sense of what you want out of life so that you aren't filled with regret. And Kirk and Sulu both seem burdened with this, especially Kirk, I'll say. And it's really an emotionally rich bit of characterization that McIntyre pulls off deftly. I mean, it's a beautiful part of this book. In the end, as we know from the recap, Sulu does decide to have a romance with Mandala. And then he does also ask Connor if he can transfer to her ship. And another way of putting this is to say that Sulu stopped endlessly worrying about and endlessly planning for his future and started living his life now. And a lot of us suffer from this. Uh, A lot of us suffer from too much daydreaming and not enough action. And and sometimes this can even become a a crippling kind of anxiety for us, a, a sense that now doesn't matter, that only some imaginary life in the future matters, an imaginary life that will surely be better than the real one that we're in now. Certainly, I've gone through phases of my life where I've succumbed to this. And McIntyre reinforces this theme by hinging the plot on a group of people who are so dissatisfied with their lives that they want a mad scientist to send them to another time, another era, where they think that they'll be happier. And while we don't really see these people after they've gone through time, we know that they won't be happier. We know that they're just going to take their ennui with them and be facing the same inner problems, just with, you know, different fashion and less toothpaste and more smallpox. And this is a pretty classic Trek move, right? To embed a statement about how we should live our lives within a a gripping space adventure. There's here a a real moral philosophy about living in the now, about living with regret. And I think it can certainly seem trite to us to be told again that we should seize the day and that we should tell our friends and family that we love them more often. But that's just because it's become a commonplace message. And, And I'm not sure that that was really true in 1981. And given that the audience for this book was adolescent boys who had a model of a a kind of stoic masculinity everywhere else in their pop culture, reading about Captain Kirk, who's part of that model, I think, reading about Captain Kirk, who's wishing that he talked more about his feelings with his best bro friend Bones, was probably pretty novel for people who read this when it came out. And that's awesome, right? That's what Star Trek is for. Now, I know I'm veering into talking about strengths and weaknesses at this point, but before we get into that proper segment, I want to pause to just talk about the Star Trek universe as it exists in this novel, because it's quite different from the Star Trek universe as it came to be developed around 1990. And I found this absolutely fascinating as a lifelong trekker. 
when we think about the Federation now, we, we tend to think of it as a post-scarcity society, a society in which the resource problem has been solved and everyone lives in a, a democratic socialist paradise, right? No one has to labor in order to have food and shelter and health care. And so everyone can just pursue their own interests and really flourish in the way that ancient Greek philosophers envisioned as the most virtuous way to live, right? The best way to live our lives, the ideal human condition. And this is an ideal that is so fundamental to the way that Trek is conceived from 1987 onward that we take for granted that the world of the original series was also a post-scarcity democratic socialist paradise. But that's not really true. In Star Trek IV, the, the one with the whales, when Kirk tells Dr. Gillian Taylor that he can't pay for their pizza and Michelob because they don't have money in the 23rd century, that's a change from what we'd seen in the TV show. Now, it's true that we don't ever see characters handling money, but a lot of people are doing things that are clearly motivated by a need for cash or, or even just by greed, by a, a desire for excess cash. Whether these are miners doing grueling labor on a, a new colony, as we see all the time, that's like a quarter of the original series episodes, or whether it's Harry Mudd trying to get rich by selling wives to those miners or you know some other scheme that he's cooked up. And Vonda McIntyre's Trek universe here in this book is totally dependent on a capitalist federation. It's, it's totally dependent on a society in which individuals are still competing against each other in order to get food and shelter and health care because there's a limited supply of these things, because there's not actually enough to, to go around. Service members, right, people in Starfleet are paid a salary and they need that money. And there's even a throwaway reference here to the idea of retirement benefits. I mean, this version of Starfleet is very much like the army that I was in. But more importantly, greed is what Braithwaite, Hunter and Scotty all imagine is the motive behind the alleged conspiracy to kill Captain Kirk. Spock and Bones and Flynn have done this in order to get rich. And this plot, this, this idea just would not make sense in the Star Trek universe that is later developed on screen, really just five or six years later. And there are some other bits of this, too, that are, I think, really fun and really interesting. Uh, the Federation also is not a tranquil political paradise. There are real political issues, and even Earth sometimes suffers from terrorism. And there are pirates who prey on shipping lanes and, and, and so on inside Federation territory. And there's also a part of Mandela Flynn's character development here that depends on the notion that not every Starfleet officer attended the Academy. In fact, most of them didn't. And that certainly isn't true on screen. We have never on screen met a Starfleet officer who did not attend the Starfleet Academy in San Francisco, even though that is an absurdly unrealistic conceit, given that there must actually be millions of Starfleet officers and you couldn't possibly fit them all on one campus on the Presidio in San Francisco. But all right, I'm, I'm, I'm verging on going on a rant here. Uh, you know, as someone who was in the military, the way that Starfleet is conceived as a military sometimes rankles me. But I will arrest this rant here and let's just move into our final segment, the strengths and weaknesses segment. And this book has one overarching big strength going for it. And that is simply that McIntyre has deftly, expertly fulfilled the brief. She's done the job that she was hired for. She's written a book that feels exactly like a Star Trek episode that I've never seen before. The characters sound exactly right. They behave just like their on-screen counterparts, and the world feels familiar even as she fleshes it out and expands it. 
And on top of this, the, the book also has the great balance between adventure and big questions that Star Trek is known for. And while I didn't particularly need to be told to make sure that I tell my wife I love her every day, I probably would have needed that if I'd been 15 in 1981. And also, there is, of course, the progressivism of Star Trek that is the core of its continuing mission. And that is really present, really foregrounded here in the Entropy Effect as well. McIntyre explores a really interesting non-monogamous marriage and also the idea of a nuclear family that uh, we would find uncomfortable, right? If a a family moved in next door to me or next door to you, uh, a family that was composed of six adults and a brood of children born of different combinations of those six adults, we would feel more than a little uncomfortable with that. But that's how Captain Hunter lives, and Kirk seriously considered marrying into that family. Of course, we do eventually get this on screen with Phlox in Enterprise, the the show from the early 2000s, but this was probably way too risque for the screen in the 1960s, or, or even the 1980s. And even Phlox is not a human, and so this is part of an alien culture, not a human one, and therefore it's more palatable to us when we see it on screen. But I really like here that McIntyre shows us that humans have had and will continue to have notions of family and and notions of marriage that don't correspond to the notions that we hold in the Anglophone world of the 20th and, and 21st centuries. But probably the really progressive, the most progressive move that McIntyre makes for 1981 is that it's Hunter who proposes marriage to Kirk, that the woman holds the power in the relationship and is able to exercise agency. And this is even more explicit in the relationship between Sulu and Mandala Flynn. It's Flynn who pursues Sulu, and she just flatly tells him that she's interested in having a sexual relationship with him, even if that's not going to last, even if that's not going to lead to a marriage. And in addition to this move, Sulu is reluctant, right? The man is reluctant to just have sex with no strings attached. He says that he's just not sure he could handle the emotional intensity of having to end their relationship in order to go pursue his career. And so he'd just rather not start that relationship. And this is a very different gender dynamic than was depicted in American pop culture around 1981. I mean, certainly on screen, right? In this pop culture, American on-screen pop culture around 1981, this is a world where young men leap at the chance to have sex with no emotional commitment. Uh, And and really, I'd say that what we learn from 70s and 80s comedies is that emotional commitment is something that men actively seek to avoid, and it's the price that men have to pay in order to have sex. And all of this work that McIntyre does here on sex, on gender relationships, on marriages and different types of families. All of this is what Star Trek is for. Star Trek is meant to challenge our conceptions about the world. It's designed to get us to ask why we hold those conceptions and whether we should. And The Entropy Effect does this just as well as your average Star Trek episode. And I found this book to be a quick and refreshing read. It certainly did not blow my mind as a sci-fi book, but it really did scratch the itch of wishing there was a Star Trek episode that I'd never seen. And I'm really glad to have read this book, and I'm, I'm really glad that this is the one that won the Patreon vote. And recording this episode has definitely made me want to go watch some Star Trek right now, maybe even with my wife so I can let her know that I love her. So I think on that note, I'm going to bring this review to a close. But I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the entropy effect. I don't read Star Trek novels as a a matter of course. For me, and especially as a teenager, my itch, my desire for a sprawling shared universe with books by scores of writers, this itch was scratched by RPG novels. 
and specifically Dragonlance novels. And we'll be getting a dose of that very soon. But of course, loads of people do read Star Trek novels. And if that's you, I would really love to know how Vonda McIntyre's work compares to other books you've read. I, I just would love to know what you thought of this one. Well, all right, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And of course, that includes our dedicated Star Trek podcast, which is called Lower Decks. And I do hope you'll check out that show if you're not already listening to me and Valerie bicker and banter each and every month. We also, of course, do a lot of Star Trek material on our monthly Patreon episodes. And Valerie and I are currently working our way through a game of Star Trek Season Survivor as we try to figure out which single season of Star Trek is the one that we simply could not live without in some imaginary post-apocalyptic world where there can be only one season of Star Trek. And I'll say, too, that I think it would be fun to get Valerie to join me for a Lower Decks ATOS hybrid where we talk about some other Star Trek novels in some way. And if that's something that interests you, you can make that happen by joining us on Patreon. And I hope you will. Okay, on Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be returning to the medium of comics by reading the very first volume of the ongoing series Monstrous. This is a, a book by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. And that first volume is called Awakening. And this is a book I'm really excited about because my wife Elizabeth has already read it. And I've looked over her shoulder enough to know that at the very least, the art is just stupendously gorgeous. But until then, until next month, I hope you'll remember that if more of his valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.